Welcome everybody to Between the Lines, the podcast from Jewish Quest. My name is Simon Ida, and each week I'm joined by a very special guest to help us deconstruct that week's parsha, exploring new insights and meaning in the Torah. And as we continue our journey through Genesis, it is wonderful to be joined this week by Dr. Christine Henriksen Garraway, who is a very familiar friend of the podcasts and to explore with us this week, of course, Toldot. A huge welcome to you, Dr. Garraway. You, of course, are visiting assistant professor of Bible at the HUCJIR And you, of course, received your doctorate in Hebrew Bible and cognate studies in the same institution. And, of course, you're the author of Children in the Ancient Near Eastern Household. So a very warm welcome. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. And, of course, as we unpack Dot together, we want to focus particularly on the story of Esau and Jacob. And to go back to the beginning of the story, Rebecca is truly struggling as she goes to inquire of God as to why she's encountering this struggle as she does. And then she's then told that two nations shall emerge from her. And then, of course, there's this really enigmatic line, the older, the younger will work. Maybe to start with, what does that mean? And just why is it so odd? Yeah, you know, we know that Rebecca is having a difficult time getting pregnant. And then when she does get pregnant, things don't go so well. So this seems to be why she's inquiring of the Lord, because her pregnancy is weird. And the Hebrew, if we were to look at it, it specifically uses the Rosh, which in an ancient Near Eastern context, this word means to seek an oracle. So not just to go like pray or God something, but to actually seek an oracle. And there's many different ways in the ancient Near East one could seek an oracle, including things that seem incredibly foreign to us today, like reading liver omens or birds that fly overhead like they do for Bill. So we don't really know what kind of oracle that Rebecca thought, but she gets an answer. If we know one thing about oracles in the ancient world, is that they're never clear. They're incredibly ambiguous and engage in something which we might call doublespeak. If the listeners are familiar with the oracle at Delphi, pretty famous oracle, and she sits over a crevasse and gases float up and, well, maybe they were special gases that gave her a sort of trip. We're not sure. But she, the oracle at Delphi gives answers that are very ambiguous. For example, King Croesus of Lydia comes and he says, should I go to war with Persia? And the answer is, he will destroy a great kingdom. So King Croesus says, great, I'm going to go to war because I'm going to destroy a great kingdom. When in reality, what actually happened is that his great kingdom gets 
destroyed. So there's ambiguity in the oracle. We might also think of maybe a more modern example, which would be a fortune cookie. If you're lucky enough to get a fortune cookie, that just doesn't have some nice saying, but like an actual fortune in it. You never know which way that could go. Like, you will have a great day. Like, great day, how? Do you then go ahead and manifest your destiny? That's a popular phrase now. And this sort of seems to be what's happening here for Rebecca when she gets her oracle. Now, the Hebrew word for word literally says, the older, the younger shall work. So what does it mean? The older shall work for the younger? Or as for the older, the younger will work for him. And so Rebecca's left with this ambiguous oracle, and she will have to decide how it's going to play out. Now, obviously, we know the end of the story and how it plays out. But if we were to put ourselves in that narrative moment, there's ambiguity. Um, so Rebecca, a nail biter there. What's going to happen with her pregnancy? Thank you for sharing that particular context that the ancient Near East throws us in light of your reference to oracles. I wonder what an understanding perhaps of twins in the ancient Near East throws in terms of context in which we might understand um, Jacob and Esau. Yeah, Rebecca's story, when we really start to dig into it, it has a lot of uncomfortable moments. So we have this uncomfortable moment, what's going to happen with the outcome of the birth of her twins, but she's also pregnant with twins. Now, in modern context, uh, a birth of twins is maybe a little bit more common than it was in the ancient world. But for twins in the ancient world, pregnancy in and of itself, even of a single baby, was complicated. Very high maternal mortality rate, and all the more so with twins. The obstetric complications were very high. So having this oracle that she has twins inside of her probably would have caused her some anxiety. And we see from the archaeological record that women used figurines to either concentrate prayers for or to maybe use as they were praying. And these figurines, these plaque figurines, um, come from the 13th century BCE. And there seems to be ones that were made specifically for women who were pregnant with twins. And if you will imagine what a sonogram looks like, they were actually quite clever for the time because these plaque figurines look like the inside of a woman with two babies in her. So it seems that they understood in the ancient world that you could have a single birth or you could have multiple births. And these plaque figurines are thought perhaps, we're guessing here, we don't know really, it doesn't have a user manual on the back, but we're guessing that women would use these uh, as some sort of a prayer ritual while they were pregnant. So the impending birth of twins was very anxiety provoking. Well, okay, why? I've said medically it's anxiety provoking, but twins were considered a bad omen. Why? Imagine if you don't understand how genetics work and you not just one individual pop out, but then a second one that looks exactly like that first individual. This is extremely frightening. So we have texts from Mesopotamia. They're called Shuma Izbu, which means if an abnormality. And the, this, these texts list all sorts of abnormalities that can happen in birth both births with animals and births, human births. 
And when it goes through abnormal, abnormal births that could happen for humans, if a woman is to give birth to twins and it calls them a double monster. So this kind of shows us just how scary this idea of two exact things coming out really was. Now, part of the reason this was a little bit freaky is because it was understood that everybody has a twin. And I'm not talking about like a doppelganger, but that everybody had a twin, but that twin was the placenta. So if you imagine now you understand that your twin or the second being is the placenta, if you have an actual twin, especially if they're identical twins, you now have a placenta who has come to life. So this was just like weird and scary and we didn't really know what to do with it. Now, part of this problem is we know that there was a lot of child death that happened for all sorts of different reasons as mundane as SIDS, which we still, sudden infant death syndrome, which we still don't really understand today, crib death, all sorts of things, which in the ancient world, they attributed to demons or to monsters or to spirits that would come in and harm the child. So of course, one way to prevent this would be to put a fake child for the spirit to come in after. And what better thing to use as a fake child than this placenta? So we see all sorts of, even in ethnographic literature that goes all the way up through Iraq and early, uh, late 19th century Palestine, where you would use the placenta as a fake out baby, as a dummy baby, and you'd put it in the crib so that the bad things would attack this twin. But what do you do when your twin comes to life? You can't just put this human child out there for attacking. So twins, or especially identical twins, were a huge problem. It was something that I think any woman in the ancient Near East would have at least paused to consider how they're going to handle this birth. Obviously, right from the outset of Jacob and Esau, we get that they are not only completely different characters, but also physically very different. How would that impact the understanding? They weren't identical, they were fraternal, but, but didn't have the identical characteristics. What does that throw in terms of the context on the story? Yeah, I think the biblical text goes out of its way to tell us that Jacob and Esau are fraternal twins. If you ask any young child, if they've learned this story, they always teach it that Esau was the red and hairy one, and Jacob was the one who stayed inside in the tents and was smoother skinned. And of course, we know this most famously from the story later on where the blessing is stolen and um, we get their characters developed where Jacob dresses up to look like Esau. Why? Because they're not identical. So I think the biblical text goes out of its way to, to assure us that these aren't scary, freaky in the ancient mindset, identical twins, but that they're fraternal twins. And we see this in other places where we see twins born as well, that fraternal twins aren't quite as, or I guess you could say, you could wrap your head around two beings born at the same time that didn't look the same. So fraternal twins seem to be okay. And I think that issue of twins is also going to play into the larger narrative context as well. So the story perhaps in a similar vein to the Ishmael Isaac story, really raises the problem of inheritance. And I wonder, why does that play such a prominent place in biblical tradition? 
the inheritance in the ancient world. The biblical text tells us we have a Mesopotamian text that also tell us that the firstborn son had more responsibilities. They got more of the inheritance for responsibilities. This might mean caring for parents when they were older, caring for the family cult, caring for the family burial grounds. You would carry on the family name. You might help marry off any unwed siblings, providing for their marriages and so on and so forth. So if you were the firstborn child, you had a lot of responsibility because you had this And so you got extra inheritance to help with all of this stuff. And so the biblical narrative likes to play with this question of this very rebellious. What if in a situation we have two children who are both firstborn, but they're firstborn of different mothers? That seems to be the context that we get with Ishmael and Isaac, where they have two different mothers, but the same father. So who is actually the firstborn? And of course, as that narrative plays out, Sarah asserts her dominance as the primary wife and the dominance of her child, Isaac, and the text supports Isaac's claim to that inheritance. But when it comes to twins, it's not what happens if we have two different mothers, but what happens if we have two babies born at the same time? There, it becomes even more important, this issue of inheritance, because twins disrupt the social order. They come from the same mom, they're born at the same time. So who gets the first right? And this is why we see some instances where like the twin reaches out and you tie a red string around around the hand so you know which one actually came out first, this is this sort of thing. But here, here in the biblical text, I think there's even maybe a larger context going on with why the younger son always disrupts the inheritance order to inherit over the elder, or we call it the younger supplanting the elder. And I would point to the work of a scholar named Ron Hendel, who thinks of a, we'll call it a meta picture. What is the biblical text in and of itself doing? It's telling the story of the people Israel. Who are the people Israel? If we look at a national historic or international historical scene, Israel is a relative newcomer. We have Mesopotamian societies who have been around for thousands of years. We have Egyptian society who's been around for thousands of years. And then we have this brand new baby nation, Israel. And so perhaps what the biblical narrative is doing is saying, look at all these stories where God favors the younger child over the elder child. And maybe what we have here is this idea that Israel, who is the younger nation, is actually meant to inherit everything and supplant these older nations, which are on the scene. So again, that's not my idea. It comes from another scholar named Ron Hendel. But I I find it a compelling, or at least a good idea for maybe why this narrative plays out so many different times in, in, I mean, think of Moses and Aaron, Cain and Abel, Isaac and Ishmael. We have Jacob and Esau. Just keep going. And it's there every time you look. Thank you so much for sharing. And we were lucky enough to have Professor Handel speak a a few weeks ago with, with us. So no, thank you for covering all those important themes and setting us up for this week. Awesome. My pleasure. It's always great to be here. And it's If anybody has questions about twins or children, feel free to get in contact. (laughs) Lots more to say. Fantastic. We will do. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Do find out all about our exciting content that we had for you on jewishquest.org. And we very much look forward to meeting again next week. Mm -hmm.